This is the 96 AD podcast, episode 4, background 3, Julius Caesar. I apologize in advance because I'm going to cover the history of Rome from 100 to 49 BC, and some of the politics involved are extremely complicated, but also very crucial, and I'll try my best to explain them all in only this one episode. This will be very challenging, and I'll miss out a lot of stuff. Feel free to ask me questions afterwards. Stay tuned to the end, and I'll tell you how. Last time, I left you with Gaius Marius, at the top of the world and at the end of five consecutive consulships. There are a lot of points in history in which you could claim that the Republic had died. It's true that the Republic is somewhat around until Augustus, but I've seen many people talk about one event or another as a time when the Republic truly died. Some call attention to the unprecedented political violence surrounding the Gracchi, some choose Caesar's march on Rome in 49, some choose Caesar's role as dictator for life in 44, some even go all the way back to the simultaneous sacking of Carthage and Corinth. It's truly the case that by the end of the Republic, it doesn't seem to be a functional system. Whatever your opinion may be, however, I believe that 100 BC marks the latest possible that you could describe the death of the Republic. Let's keep in mind the goals of the Republic as outlined in episode 2. This was that the Republic was designed to not provide one man with unchecked power. Marius had this. Term limits and a co-ruler was the plan designed to keep the consuls in line. Marius was able to secure consulship after consulship, and nobody knew if the fifth one would be the last. He would additionally always have a pliable co-consul that seemed more like an appointment than an election. Whoever Marius said he wanted, that's who was elected. It is the case by this point that the Republic must be truly dead, because under the true Republican system, there's no way that Marius should have had this kind of power. The Republic will go on until the 20s BC, but at this point, the Republic as an institution is not working properly. I can't tell you the single event or the single piece of legislation that caused it to die. It must have been a slow transition, it's just that by 100 BC, it's not the same system that it was in 509. In any event, we find ourselves in 100 BC. Two Republic Enders, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus, are long dead. The second set of two Republic Enders, Marius and Sulla, are starting to butt heads and take control of the government while the third set of Republic Enders, Pompey and Caesar, are currently busy in elementary school on getting their diapers changed, respectively. If you'll recall from last episode, Gaius Gracchus's first major failure was in suggesting citizenship to Italians. Up until now, like any other city-turned-empire, Roman citizenship was only granted to those who lived in the city of Rome itself, plus any specific individuals that the Senate would individually give citizenship to. The Italian cities liked their nominal independence, but Eventually, by the time of the Gracchi, they found themselves constantly abused and taken advantage of by the rich Romans. Marius always supported the Italians, and they were always a supporter of him. He would always give citizenship to Italian soldiers that he particularly liked that served under him. In 95 BC, the conservatives in the Senate put a motion forward to strip many Italians of their citizenship, which would sow additional seeds of discontent. By 91 BC, the courts had been abused beyond belief in trials that saw innocent men banished from the city, and political violence and extortion became normal in the city. A tribune named Drusus, carrying the tradition of the Gracchi, in 91 BC attempted to expand upon land reform, judicial reform, and others, including Italian citizenship. The conservatives in the Senate managed to completely shut down the tribune, and this may have been the final straw that broke the camel's back as the Italians found another one of their advocates shut down by the Senate. When Drusus was eventually assassinated, 
the damage was irreversible. In the Italian city of Asculum, Roman magistrates were rounded up and killed, and the social war began. The social war, which began in 91 BC and ended in the 80s, was the war in which the Italian cities fought against the Romans for citizenship, among other things. And 90 BC saw a type of scared defense of Rome that had not been seen since the Second Punic War when Hannibal was in the province. Every senior magistrate was sent to handle the Italian citizenship issue. A purge of the Italian citizenship supporters was even held in the city of Rome, and many prominent senators were exiled. Julius Caesar's cousin was consul for the year of 90 BC and took to the field against the Italians, alongside Marius, Sulla, Pompey, Strabo, and Cinna, who will all shortly play important roles in the end of the Republic. Since 100 BC, Marius had gone into retirement and had only come out of retirement to fight the social war. Sulla had made massive strides in his own political career. He had been praetor and had extremely successful governorships. Sulla would use his prominence and the lack of Marius in the public eye to take greater credit for the successes that he and Marius shared. This continued to create a rift between them, and this rift would eventually blow up into full-blown war. Despite all these hugely capable commanders taking to the field, the Romans started losing. But the Senate was uncomfortable with the now washed-up general, and so a Senate appointee was sent to be a co-general with Marius. But this co-general ended up assassinated by the Italians in no time. In the south, a failed siege of Asculum led to the Roman army there to have their leader die of an illness. The army would then be led by Pompey Strabo, the father of our fifth Republicander, Gnaeus Pompeius. We will henceforth refer to him as Pompey. Pompey would have been just a teenager at the time, but already seeing prominence in the military. After these defeats, the consul Caesar decided to pass a bill that would grant Italian citizenship. But the bill would have them have effectively no sway in elections going forward. This was acceptable to the Senate, and so it passed easily. And soon, senators were hopping over each other to show more support for the Italians because that became the new cool thing. In 89 BC, Pompey Strabo was elected consul, and he himself would grant citizenship to northern Italians. This group of northern Italians was important to take control of because they were the first line of defense against Gaulish attacks. And this region was beforehand not really appreciated by other Romans, this became a unique large base of support for him and his son. Despite all this, there were still many Italian rebels. In my mind, this indicates that citizenship was not only the issue they were fighting for, it was simply a pretext for war. And the Italians wanted greater independence as a whole and other rights and maybe they just wanted to fight a war for war's sake. While Strabo was busy granting citizenship, the other consul was sent to babysit Marius and his army. The consul forced Marius to resign due to bad health, but then the consul himself died in an ill-fought battle. With the aid of young Pompey, Pompey Strabo's army and Sulla's army caused the social war to start to peter out by the end of 89 BC. Hundreds of thousands had supposedly died in this multi-year conflict, and the result was financial ruin. For the following year, Sulla and one of his allies were made consuls, Riots were eventually instigated, caused by radical reformist tribunes that resulted in the other consul's son's murder, with the two consuls barely even being able to escape with their own lives. Sulla eventually bent to the whim of the tribune, and he fled the city. He headed to his six legions that were sitting not far from Rome. Earlier in his term, Sulla had been appointed to take his army to the east to beat an insurrection. This was an extremely desirable position. And if he was successful, Sulla would reach the same heights of Gaius Marius himself. 
However, Marius wanted this position as well. He wanted it to be his last great campaign before a true retirement. Once Sulla was out of the city, however, kicked out of the city by the tribune who was causing a muck in the streets, Marius got himself appointed to the position that Sulla had had. This caused Sulla's soldiers to go nuts. They would have been really excited for the campaign. They were undoubtedly expecting massive payouts if they were able to envelop the eastern provinces and destroy an eastern king. Marius sent two officers to take control of Sulla's army, but the officers were killed by the men. Civil war had begun. Sulla marched straight on Rome with six veteran legions. Immediately, Sulla's allies in the city were massacred by Marius. The other consul and many other magistrates fled the city and met up with Sulla. At the same time, many officers and soldiers refused to march on Rome and so fled to the city to aid in its defense. This will be the first time that a Roman general marches on the Eternal City, and let me tell you, it will not be the last. It was easy enough for Sulla to take the streets and march through the city like it was a triumph. Sulla simply announced 12 enemies of state, Marius and his allies, and announced that no other violence was to be had. He had hoped that he could deflect some of the bad PR that comes from marching on Rome itself. Sulla was hoping to garner a bit of support since marching on Rome was not something anyone would like, but if he acted kind and didn't have any strict retribution, things should work out. But no one was fooled by the fact that Sulla was simply acting on his own volition and he had essentially become a dictator in the city. Marius fled, but many of the other twelve enemies were captured, including the troublesome Tribune. In 87 BC, Sulla made a show of having legitimate elections, and the two consuls were even not Sulla's best friends. Sulla left the city on that military posting to the east, and it granted legal protection, so he didn't really care what happened back in Rome. He was going to be fine. And he was hoping that overwhelming victories in the east would make everyone kind of just forget all the things that he had done. Nearly immediately after leaving the city, one of the consuls, Cinna, called for Sulla's arrest. But Cinna had no real power outside of the city, so Sulla simply got up and left. The other consul would get Cinna stripped of his consulship and evicted from the city. Cinna would then start raising large armies in Italy, and Marius would come and help him out. Strabo was the unknown figure in this equation, and his support could even decide the winners. Strabo would go for Octavius and the city of Rome. It seems like it'd be an easy victory for the defenders of the city, but turns out Strabo wasn't the deciding factor. Strabo eventually died, and Marius and Cinna marched on the city with next to no resistance, and a large massacre started. The other consul was killed, and it appears that even rich citizens were targeted, just so the new regime could take their money once they died. We have over a dozen names being tied to this massacre, including six ex-consuls. Massive amounts of prominent figures fled the city, and met up with Sulla in the east. Sulla would eventually win handedly in Greece, but only in 84 BC. And, with a massive amount of prominent aristocrats and senators, he would head back to Italy then. But for now, it's 86 BC. Marius and Cinna effectively appointed themselves consul, as they didn't allow anyone else to run. But, a few weeks after taking his seventh consulship, Gaius Marius died of natural causes. Cinna was now effectively a monarch. In all honesty, I could describe him as the Ninth Republic killer, but in my mind he's looped in with the larger story of Marius and Sulla. In any event, Cinna found himself in financial ruin, and given that he relied on the new Italian citizens for support, 
His administration would not continue while they were in economic disaster. Cinna became quite unpopular, especially with the troops, who no doubt would have preferred to fight with the massively successful Sulla. Cinna would eventually get killed by his troops suddenly in 84 BC, after four straight years of being consul. Cinna's allies then consolidated power and pulled their troops out of Greece and tried to hold Italy itself to defend against Sulla, but Sulla arrived in Italy in 83 BC, and two young men flocked to his banner. Pompey and Crassus. Crassus will fit in later in the story. What's incredible is that Pompey was only in his 20s and had never held public office. He simply carried on after the death of his father and used a war to do things otherwise impossible, like a modern age Scipio Africanus. Pompey's personal connections and influence, and nothing else, hoarded him great power in Italy. Sulla would eventually gain control of Italy and eventually Rome. Pompey and Crassus loyal lieutenants would each personally win battles on behalf of Sulla and would propel their careers incredibly forward. Sulla arrived in Rome, a Rome cultivated by Marius and Cinna to be devoid of Sullan support, and he aimed to cull all the Marians, which would have been most of the city. Sulla arranged for a large number of prominent men to be killed, and their money and estates be seized in what we call the proscriptions. Hundreds of names would appear in the forum each day. When your name appeared in the forum, you were officially stripped of citizenship and all rights, and any man who brought your head to Sulla would get a portion of your wealth and land. People's names were added even specifically because they were rich, so Sulla could seize their money. In the end, over a thousand prominent Romans were killed. Gaius Julius Caesar was likely 18 years old in 82 BC when the proscriptions took place. Caesar was the nephew of Marius, remember, and had even married the daughter of Cinna recently. So it's not entirely surprising that the heir to the Marians and Sinas found his name on the prescription lists. Caesar hid for quite a while, traveling all around Italy to helpful friends who would house him for a night or two. Eventually, he would get his name cleared by his mother, who convinced Sulla personally. Sulla, prophetically, supposedly, said that he saw many a Marius in the young Caesar, and no boy was he correct. Appearing like Marius himself, however, Sulla convinced the Senate to grant him perpetual dictatorship. He wanted this so he could fix the Republic, but he actually did a pretty decent job. Given that both the consuls were dead, he had all the power in the world. They were dead at his command, but he didn't talk about that much. Sulla introduced strict rules for when men could reach certain positions in the Senate and in which orders they should seek them. He institutionalized everything and made it much more streamlined and less exemptions could be made, except for Pompey. And so now it was official. He would become quaestor at 30, praetor at 39, and consul at 42, with aedile being optional and somewhere between quaestor and praetor. He also increased the number of quaestors and praetors. He also reduced how long men could govern a given region, to reduce the odds of them creating large power bases somewhere in the province. He fixed the courts and did many other important things that in another time could have fixed the Republic, but Caesar wasn't too far away. In the end, these unilaterally gave more power to the Senate and less to the people, which maybe pushed it in the wrong direction. Sulla resigned a year after becoming dictator for life. He would serve consul for a year after that. Then he would go into retirement and die peacefully not long after. Half of our Republic enders are gone, and two of them are reaching their prominence. Pompey had undoubtedly become extremely powerful as a result of being one of Sulla's primary lieutenants. In the 70s BC, Pompey would have massive successes in battles. 
he would be appointed to govern Spain while he was far too young to and far too unqualified for it. And eventually he would even help a little bit in stamping out the slave revolt of Spartacus in Italy. At the same time, Crassus had been the main magistrate who helped ended the slave revolt. And by the late 70s BC, Crassus had become extraordinarily wealthy, probably the richest man in Rome. But he was merely reaching each stage in his political career at the expected age. He was consistently overshadowed by Pompey, who by this time had also seen multiple triumphs, but had never even held elected office. However, the unlikely duo in 70 BC both served as consul. Crassus would have been roughly 45, a bit old, so not super impressive, while Pompey was only 35, far too young and quite extreme. Pompey would eventually get himself appointed to the east and would finish the work that Sulla had begun. Pompey's conquest would see the east truly enveloped into the Roman fold. Caesar would be elected quaestor, aedile, and praetor, all in his year or a few years early. Each step of the way he indebted himself further, with Crassus likely gambling his money on the young aristocrat. And meanwhile, after becoming quaestor, Caesar got himself appointed as the chief priest of Rome. In this position, which ultimately was only a part-time job, which was also held for life and was also an elected position, was extremely useful because it allowed the young aristocrat to bring himself to center stage in public life, get his name out there and allowing the populace to become familiar with him. The position, Pontifex Maximus, also had authority over religious matters, which was dominant in public life, and which will come into play later. Caesar barely won the election, having secured an extreme amount of money to spend on bribes, with some of the cash surely coming from Crassus. Fun fact, the position still exists today, and you're actually well aware of it, I'm sure. It still exists, in Rome, and is given to a wielder of a religious authority. Can you guess who it is? The Pontifex Maximus, in modern times, is simply referred to as the Pope. In an event in 62 BC, after he concluded his praetorship, Caesar was appointed to govern Spain. This was his first true means to make some money, and he did. And he also won some battles. He won enough battles to be eligible for a triumphal procession in the city. By 61 BC, Pompey was back in Rome, and had celebrated his third triumph after securing many new territories for Rome. For several years, he had trouble passing legislation through the Senate to grant land for his veterans. At the same time, Crassus was struggling to get tax collectors bailed out, and it was costing him profits. Caesar returned to Rome in 60 BC, and aimed to hold a triumph and then become consul. However, Successful haggling by the Senate made Caesar have to choose between running for consul and having a triumph, because you couldn't hold a triumph while you're a private citizen, but you had to be a private citizen to run for consul, and they made the consular elections before the date of his triumph. The obvious choice was to take the triumph. The ceremony was rarely awarded. It was exceptional for anyone, especially of his age, to get one, aside from Pompey, and Caesar could simply run for consul next year. Caesar defied all logic. He entered Rome and decided to run for consul and threw away a triumph. Caesar's year as consul is probably one of the most consequential years in human history, as it propelled him from average successful politician to a juggernaut of Roman politics. Caesar was able to handedly win the election, but a conservative candidate named Bibulus was his co-consul. Caesar then struck a deal with Pompey and Crassus to make sure he was successful in office. This deal would be known to history as the first triumvirate. Caesar will eventually marry his daughter to Pompey to secure the deal. Caesar promised to get Pompey and Crassus' legislation passed if they supported his land reform. Yes, land reform. 
This was still needed and still had massive opponents in the Senate. Caesar needed to push the bill through fast as he possibly could. He wrote an excellent bill. It had all the right reasonable concessions for the Senate and it could not be reasonably argued against. However, the conservatives simply argued and argued. They said it was, it was not a good time for this and we should focus on other matters, blah, 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 until the Senate was forced to adjourn for the day. Caesar pulled the old Gracchi trick of simply presenting the legislation to the public assembly. Biblis tried to veto it, but the roars of the crowd caused Caesar to claim he didn't hear it. The bill would eventually pass, and the violent support that Caesar was able to stir up led Biblis to fear for his life. Biblis was attacked and nearly killed. The fact that Caesar was flanked by the immensely popular Pompey and Crassus, who showed their support, meant that the bill had nearly universal support among everyone except the extremists in the Senate. Everything Caesar had done was definitely illegal, but there wasn't much that could be done to a sitting consul. It's not like it was a tribune, and especially if the co-consul was as weak as Bibulus. Bibulus attempted to use his consular power to cite religious reasons to stop public business from taking place, which would stop Caesar from pushing legislation or doing anything else important. However, Caesar's position as Pontifex Maximus allowed him to have authority over Bibulus and conduct public business anyways. This was probably also illegal, but no one really cared. And so now, Caesar was effectively the sole consul, since Bibulus wouldn't leave his house. The last ace up the sleeve of the Senate was to appoint Caesar to no provinces, but to maintain the countryside of Italy. No army and no authority. It was a slap in the face. But Caesar, as more or less sole consul, got a province change. Through a mix of intimidation, political maneuvering, and luck, Caesar was appointed to be governor of three provinces, Cisalpine Gaul, Transalpine Gaul, and Illyricum. They all bordered each other and were all the northern border of Italy. He would additionally have a relatively large army, and he would raise a larger one for himself too, and he would have a term of five years. Normally, consuls and praetors would be given one province for one year, maybe two. Caesar had three provinces for five years. He left Rome in 58 BC immensely influential and powerful, while at the same time had caused half of the Senate to want to personally prosecute him and get him exiled, or worse. The game was now for Caesar to always have military or public roles, since under these roles he would have immunity. He had five years as governor, but was not allowed to run for consul for ten years. So what was he going to do? Well, for now, he needed massive military victories in Gaul to ensure a longer term as governor. Gaul, by the way, is modern France and his provinces were in the south of France. Caesar arrived in Gaul in 58 BC with several legions, and trained up several more. In any event, when a tribe of Gauls called the Helveti tried to cross through Roman territory on a migration, Caesar wouldn't allow them to pass, and engaged in battle. He had to chase them further north into Gaul before defeating them. During this summer, many tribes in the region would pledge support for Caesar as he flew through Gaul. Afterwards, his Gallic allies would call on him to protect them from a German king named Ariovistus. Clearly, they were happy with how Caesar protected them from the Helvetii. The Germans led Caesar all the way into Germany. Ariovistus was an experienced commander, and Caesar was looking disadvantaged. The Gauls were relatively easy to beat. It was hard to field a large army for a tribe like them, and if you're in a migration, you don't just have your military out there, you have everyone and everything with you. You can't move quickly, and you have no good maneuvers. But the Germans, they were good navigators. They knew what they were doing. But Caesar had learned that Ariovistus was avoiding a battle due to a religious prophecy that he couldn't win until a certain day. So Caesar attacked them surprisingly 
and won a swift victory. For his first year campaigning in Gaul, Caesar claimed that he had won two wars in a single summer. Caesar raised two more legions in preparation for campaigning in 57 BC. Caesar continued his model of paying his soldiers personally and not relying on the Senate to appoint him new legions, which was also illegal. Caesar also preferred to promote experienced soldiers. He allowed them upwards mobility as a career soldier. It was incredible. There was lots of personal friendship between Caesar and his soldiers. He would refer to them as comrades and not soldiers or men. By all accounts, it was a good army to serve in. For the winters, Caesar would distribute his men across Gaul, which undoubtedly was a sign that he aimed to subjugate the entire region and wasn't just a benevolent helper of his allies. Anyways, by the summer, Caesar was hearing of a coalition of tribes in the north called the Belgae who were grouping up to fight him. However, Caesar was initially able to wait them out. Like I said before, a large tribal army can't be in the field for too long. They don't have the means to feed it, supply it, and they don't have the leaders for it. So, it dispersed, and Caesar went around the Belgae territory, subjugating individual tribes. This eventually resulted in a battle that nearly saw him defeated. Caesar was more or less tricked into committing to a river crossing, where the Gauls were waiting on the other side. They jumped out of the trees and chased him across the river, and if it wasn't for the overwhelming individual superiority of the Roman troops, they might have lost. Afterwards, Caesar cleaned up the rest of the tribes and most of the northern region. In 56 BC, Caesar mopped up more resistance in western Gaul, and most of the region, from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic to the English Channel to the Rhine, was under Caesar's control, however shaky control. During the last few years, Caesar had seen massive victories, multiple massive victories. He had been continually sending reports back to Rome, no doubt garnering lots of praise and support from the Romans who gobbled up the propaganda that Caesar was definitely feeding them. He was seen as a hero and was close to rivaling Pompey in terms of success. Speaking of Pompey, Pompey had been in Rome for the last little while since Caesar has departed. Rome had become a mess. Street mobs run by senators had become the norm and it was quickly devolving into anarchy. An extremely controversial event was one that I hinted at a couple episodes ago. Publius Clodius Pulcher had gotten Caesar himself to oversee Clodius' transition from a patrician to a plebeian, just so he could run for tribune. By all accounts, Clodius' effect on Roman politics is immense. He definitely contributed much more directly to the end of the Republic than several of the Republic enders. He likely should be on the list alongside Cinna, but is also overshadowed in my eyes by Caesar and Pompey. In any event, Clodius became the most consequential tribune since the Gracchi, had passed a crazy amount of legislation, and his personal power rivaled that of Caesar when he was in office as consul. After his term, Clodius would continually lead street gangs in Rome, fighting for a reformist cause and tangentially supporting Caesar. Another senator, named Milo, fought for the conservative side with his own gang of street thugs. There was never a cease to the street violence. New bodies were piling up in the streets as the gangs battled out every day. In 56 BC, Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus met in Italy in a town called Lucca to discuss politics. The three men, the triumvirate, had been dominating politics ever since the consulship of Caesar a couple years ago. They met in the city in Italy to discuss plans for the future. They agreed that Pompey and Crassus should be consul for 55 BC. And then they'd get important provinces for 54 BC, extreme commands like that of Caesar. Crassus would get a five-year position in Syria, and Pompey would get a five-year position in Spain. Crassus was hoping for a large military success, 
where Pompey decided that he was at the end of his military successes, and he would govern from Rome, which was atypical, so that he could stay politically active in the Senate. In return, they would make sure that Caesar's governorship would be extended until 49 BC, so he could run for consul then. This plan was no doubt created to split up the three triumvirs because it would come to a point where they didn't need to be allies anymore and instead were rivals for power. The three of them were the most influential people in the entirety of Rome. Maybe they didn't need each other's support. But if everyone had five-year commands out in the province, that's five years where they didn't need to butt heads. In 55 BC, Caesar saw insurrections in Gaul, and once he stamped them out, he decided to take an expedition to Britain. This expedition failed entirely. It was launched late in the year, so the weather never agreed with Caesar, and he had to return back extremely quickly after no success at all. Despite the failure, Caesar regardless spun it as a victory, and the Romans loved him for it. The simple fact that a Roman general reached Britain for the first time was incredible, and he survived. The Romans thought that the island was mysterious and magical, and Caesar would claim that he and his legions braved the island and survived. Caesar would learn from his first invasion, and the second one was much more well prepared. In 54 BC, five legions on 600 boats crossed the channel and landed on the island. Caesar would march through the island, win large battles, and secure the nominal support of many of the tribes in the region. We can't call the second invasion really a success, since he left pretty quickly, and no lasting Roman influence was really on the island, except maybe more trade. But at least he left on reliably amicable terms, and showed that the Romans of the future could conquer the island. Who knew that it would take a century? After the invasion of Britain, Caesar saw the biggest disaster in Gaul so far. One of his legions that was stationed away for the winter was massacred, and a second one nearly fell into the same trap. Caesar and the rest of the legions were barely able to save them and escape. The Gauls could tell at this point that the Romans were there to stay. Caesar had pretended that he was marching around Gaul to protect his allies, but it now became obvious that complete annexation was not far away. Rebellion grew and grew, and in response, Caesar massively increased the size of his army. He recruited two new legions and would continually call on his allies to supply troops, and in addition, Pompey loaded him a legion. Surely, this arrangement would not have large consequences. In 54 BC, the Triumvirs ruled the world. Between them, they had 20 legions, and each had individual authority that could dwarf the rest of the entire Senate. The consuls for 54 BC quite literally had less power than them. The Triumvirs were even able to dominate politics from a distance, with allies in the Senate fighting for their cause. However, 54 BC would prove to be the end of the Triumvirate. Crassus's military engagements in the east resulted in a massive defeat and his own death in the deserts of Persia. In the same year, Caesar's daughter, who had been married to Pompey, passed away. This severed the marital link between the two, and combined with the fact that Crassus couldn't be a mediating power, the two men were individually so powerful that they'd become rivals instead of allies. Simply, they didn't need each other anymore. The fact that there was a third partner meant that no single one of them could take full control. If you only had one enemy, you only need to beat the one guy. This will create the divide that leads to civil war in 49 BC. Caesar kept stamping out resistance, flying around Gaul and asserting his authority wherever it was needed. The Gauls kept themselves to secretly organizing an uprising, and in 52 BC, it was in full swing. A large amount of tribes unified under a single leader, Vercingetorix. Vercingetorix was brilliant and was well versed in Roman warfare. 
His army was well supplied and by any metric could match Caesar's. Vercingetorix would show his smarts by starting out with a scorched earth tactic. Caesar had his army in enemy territory. It wouldn't be easy to get more resources, and so Vercingetorix burned down every village near him and took all the resources that the region had. Caesar was deprived of food, and so he was forced to head straight to the largest city in the region. After a month-long siege that nearly starved him to death, Caesar's men made it over the walls. For now, they were well fed. Vercingetorix would force Caesar to chase him around Gaul for quite a while, and Caesar's army made several major mistakes, which increased the morale and legitimacy of Vercingetorix's army. To be honest, it looked like Caesar might lose. Caesar's last attempt was to corner Vercingetorix in the city of Elysia. The traditional prowess of the Roman engineering was shown in full force when Caesar's army built roughly 25 miles of walls in less than a month. They had built two walls, one that faced inwards and blocked the inhabitants from leaving, and an outer wall that would protect Caesar from a Gallic relief army. And upon completion, the citizens of Lysia were stuck and ran out of food. A Gallic relief army did arrive and should have defeated Caesar. However, Caesar's army was incredibly well trained. They had been fighting together for nearly a decade, and at this point had a massive amount of officials that were talented and capable, which was atypical for a Roman army, which was usually staffed with random amateur aristocrats hoping for the PR success of being in a battle. Caesar's legates were all very capable. The competence of the army allowed small contingents to defend sections of the walls autonomously, but it all came down to a gamble. The Gauls had broken the outer wall and were marching in. Caesar personally led a cavalry charge alongside our 7th Republicander, Mark Antony. The cavalry charge surprised the Gauls, and the relief army thought that a Roman relief army had come, so they fled. The inhabitants of the city were starved and surrendered. Vercingetorix was taken prisoner, and as far as anyone was concerned, Gaul was under the control of Gaius Julius Caesar. Backpedaling a bit, in 53 BC, Pompey was effectively in control of Rome. Crassus was dead in the east, and Caesar was suppressing the building conspiracy in Gaul. Pompey was the only triumvirate in the city, and had so much personal gravitas. Pompey personally oversaw the election for 53 BC, and the winners were corrupt. Milo and Clodius were still on the streets causing havoc, fighting each other, until a fateful brawl resulted in Clodius's death and Milo's exile. Pompey was then invested by the Senate with ultimate power. He was given the authority to save the Republic by any means. Dictator as a position was avoided for bad PR, so Pompey was simply made sole consul for 52 BC. If you disagreed with me on 100 BC being the latest you could describe the end of the Republic, 52 BC sure seems like a good year. The Republic was simply not the same institution that Lucius Junius Brutus created in 509. We can both agree it's over by now. Pompey was consul with no colleague, and he was appointed. There was no vote. The basis of the Republic was over. In Gaul by 50 BC, serious fighting had ended. By this time, Caesar's personal wealth dwarfed small countries, and his influence was even greater. Caesar and Pompey were each individually so powerful that day by day, it was seeming more and more like Marius and Sulla. And it shouldn't be surprising either, given that they were the nephew of Marius and the lieutenant of Sulla. It makes sense that the rivalry will continue and get even worse. Let's remember that the moment Caesar lost immunity from the law, he would be prosecuted and half the Senate wanted him gone from public life. 
Caesar needed to keep going as governor until 49 BC, where he could stand for consul again, since he needed 10 years between consulships. I mean, this rule didn't apply for Pompey, since he secured exemptions from the Senate all the time, but Caesar didn't have that kind of support. By 50 BC in Rome, Pompey had grown closer to the senatorial aristocracy. The faith they had in him to be sole consul in 452 BC clearly shows that they felt themselves aligned with him. In 51 BC, the consuls were both anti-Caesar and were making motions to depose him from his governorship. The consul argued that Caesar should return because the Gallic Wars were over and the extraordinary command was no longer needed. Plans were laid by the consul and his allies to address the provinces. This was a transparent thing that was meant to target Caesar for deposition. Caesar's allies in the Senate, the now tribunes Mark Antony and Decimus Brutus, vetoed every proposition the Senate made. By the end of 51 BC, the Caesarians successfully kept Caesar in his governorship and outlasted the consuls. But largely, the Caesarians seemed to be acting against the Senate, which was a bad look. The Senate then argued that the bill extending Caesar's initial five-year command ends before consuls would be elected for 49 BC. This was because of ambiguity in the poorly written bill. The consuls for 50 BC were both elected on the issue of deposing Caesar, but massive bribes made one consul turn, and so the Senate was in a deadlock with the two consuls in opposition. The Senate couldn't pass meaningful legislation. Any anti-Caesarian legislation was blocked by the consul and the tribunes, and there was no hope for any sort of Caesarian legislation to pass. Truly, the Senate had become extremely radical, with senators taking one side or the other, and above all else, one to appease the other side. In the summer of 50 BC, Caesar was still in command, and the elections weren't too far away. A routine bill in the Senate had support from both sides. Since the defeat of Crassus in the East in 54 BC, the East needed reinforcements. The Senate decided that Caesar should send a legion, and that Pompey should send a legion. This was fair, wouldn't disadvantage one side too much, make everyone comfortable. Caesar prepared his legion to leave when Pompey pulled a fast one. Remember that legion that Pompey had loaned Caesar? Pompey chose to send that one. Suddenly, Caesar became extremely uncomfortable because he would be losing two full veteran legions. This would give Pompey the advantage if a war broke out. Caesar instead bought the support of two legions. Then, he took his favorite legion and marched on Italy. Things started to heat up in Rome extremely quickly. Suggestions were made that Caesar and Pompey should resign simultaneously. The Caesarians would have been willing to agree with this, but the Pompeians refused, even though it was the best choice they had. Rome nearly exploded when rumors started circling that Caesar had four legions in northern Italy. Turns out, he only had one. And he only needed one. In mid-January 49 BC, Caesar took the 13th legion to the border of Italy. This was the River Rubicon. Just before crossing, Caesar quoted a Greek play, The Die is Cast. He had won battles and had taken part in administering nearly every corner of the Republic. He had been consul before his year, and if all was well, he'll be consul again. And in his 50 years of life, he had done so much. But what he was coming on now was going to be the most challenging one yet, and he needed all the luck he had. He had played his hand. He marched on Rome. The die is cast. Let's see what happens. I've heard many people talk about why Caesar marched on Rome in 49 BC. Many, especially ancient writers that are writing centuries after the death of Caesar, decided that it was what Caesar wanted all along. They would argue that 
since being a child, Caesar wanted to be a monarch, and they would point to everything he had ever done as proof of that. I'm of the opinion that it was simply a savvy political decision, that it was a result of the Roman system. In Adrian Goldsworthy's biography of Julius Caesar, he went on at length in nearly every chapter about how the Roman politicians were above all else selfish. There were no parties, and there were rarely lifelong allies. The truly powerful and successful Romans would take whatever path gave them the most power and wealth. Bribery, extortion, and other unethical practices took place everywhere in every single election without fail. Every move was political, every decision, no one did anything for altruistic reasons. And even if you didn't bribe anyone personally, your supporters would bribe people on your behalf. Simple as that. And if you didn't bribe someone, someone else would. And if you want to make good change, you have to stoop to their level. So I don't believe that Caesar wanted to be king all along, and that maybe it came along later. Many writers go so far as to describe him as seeking monarchy as a teenager. This just doesn't seem reasonable. Caesar was undoubtedly extremely ambitious. He wanted to be consul. He wanted to be a war hero. He wanted to be the most important Roman, perhaps like Uncle Marius. Caesar's march on Rome was simply a result of the fact that he had to do it. If he did not do it, his political career would be over, and that was the most important thing for him. He believed that he had done great things for the Republic, and this is true. Among others, he had added all of Gaul to the Empire and pushed extremely important legislation, like land reform. Caesar is exceptionally skilled in all military matters, and especially in backroom politics. By the time he wins the Civil War that he's just started, he will outgeneral the best generals, and outpolitician the best politicians. Now, this is all a very kind view of Caesar, but let's go the other way too. By all accounts, Caesar was quite egomaniacal. He felt entitled to higher offices and to every title that was given to him. He was vain and surely acted like a tyrant ever since he was a quaestor. Yes, Caesar marched on Rome as a result of the bickering Senate, as a result of their political attacks on him that were personal. And yes, the Senate forced him to do it. However, Caesar's illegal activity as consul and provocative activity throughout his whole life caused the Senate to do that. It was Caesar's own fault that the Senate was after him. He was guilty of all the crimes they accused him of, even though they were only accusing him for political matters, because they themselves were all guilty too. Caesar's choice to march on Rome was the only choice he had, but his actions are ultimately the only reason he had to make the choice. I can't believe that I couldn't get through to 44 BC in one episode, but I'll be calling it early here, as Caesar marches on Rome. If you want to ask me questions or leave suggestions for the podcast, head to my de facto website, the 96AD subreddit. Just head over to reddit.com slash r slash 96AD. You can find the link in the podcast description. I'll be posting updates about the podcast there, and I will respond to anybody who posts. Feel free to DM me as well and I'm willing to post my sources there if anyone's interested. Another thing you'll find on the subreddit is a PayPal donate button. This is not required or expected. This podcast will remain free, and I don't aim to profit. However, donations will cover the cost of production and will support me, a student, who is attempting to study, work, and produce this podcast all at once for some reason. Next episode, I hope to get Rome all the way to 68 AD. But don't count on it entirely. Might have to be split into two episodes or one and a half. We'll see. I plan to release the first episode regardless next Sunday, so hopefully in three weeks I'll be starting with the Flavians. I'll see you then.